Hey, Billy, why do you look so down? Aw, Dad, I got a computer, a PlayStation, and a barn full of iguanas, and I'm still bored. <sighs> Gee, Billy, when I was your age, I would read lots of stories in pulp magazines. Oh, with stories of weird adventure and fantasy, horror, satire, and lots of action. Wow, that sounds great, Dad. Yeah, I sure wish there was something like that right now. <laughs> there is, Daddy-O. Who are you? I'm Dr. Mary Von Roxbrocket, host of the Twisted Pulp Radio Hour. And now there's... Twisted Pulp Magazine! <laughs> What's that, Doctor? Why, it is a return to greatness! Available on all your digital devices! That is what it is! Look! Whoa! Dad, this looks awesome! Exciting and, dare I say it, very unwholesome! You definitely have that right, my good man! <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Mary! My pleasure, Billy! And just between you and me, I am not sure that this man is really your father. Bye! Dad? Uh, just read your Twisted Pulp magazine, Billy. Twisted Pulp magazine! Available in dark alleyways behind meth labs everywhere! Or at Amazon.com or ScreamingEyePress.com! That is S-C-R-E-A-M-I-N-G-E-Y-E-P-R-E-S-S.com! <laughs> While traveling home from a job interview in California, Mark and Allie Thurston suffer a car accident in the middle of nowhere, Kansas. Allie, are you alright? After walking for miles to the nearest convenience store, they are greeted by Hap, the store owner, who invites them to stay the night in his home. Me and my son would be glad to have you. When the two announce their plans to stay in a nearby hotel and restaurant, the Old Tawan Buffet. Hap does his best to dissuade them, but when they insist, he leaves them with a strange warning. Don't eat the calamari. When the warning goes unheeded, Mark and Allie are plunged headlong into a cosmic nightmare. Mark! Mark! What's happening to me? Giants, frogmen, time travel, and interdimensional madness. Now you die, your alley dies, your old man dies, I find your home, all of your friends die. All of which concludes in a battle against an ancient evil. You will bow before the mighty Dion Dega. Together they must find a way to preserve their lives, their sanity, and perhaps even their world. Part love story and part comedy. Perfect for fans of Ghostbusters and Cloverfield. The Old Talon Buffet by Wesley Critchfield is a deep dive into Lovecraftian horror that will keep you in suspense and make you want to come back for seconds. Great. I've woken up in the middle of a British Three Stooges routine. More like Gilbert and Sullivan, I should think. No, Monty Python's far more my speed. The Old Talon Buffet, or Don't Eat the Calamari by Wesley Critchfield. Read it now on Kindle and Kindle Unlimited. Audiobook version coming soon at audible.com. ...den Richtlinien so vorgenommen worden sind, wie wir das für richtig halten. Das heißt...
Three Skeleton Key by George Tudose Read by Wesley Critchfield My most terrifying experience. Well, one does have a few in 35 years of service in the lights. Although it's mostly monotonous routine work. Keeping the light in order, making all the reports. When I was a young man, not very long in the service, there was an opening at the lighthouse, newly built off the coast of Ghana, on a small rock, 20 miles or so from the mainland. The pay was high, so in order to reach the sum I had to save before I was married, I volunteered for the service at the new light. Three Skeleton Key the small rock on which the light stood, bore a bad reputation. It had earned its name from a story of three convicts who had escaped from Cayenne in a stolen dugout canoe, and they were wrecked on the rock during the night, managed to escape the sea, but eventually died of hunger and thirst. When they were discovered, nothing remained but three heaps of bones, picked clean by the birds. The story was that the three skeletons gleaming with phosphorescent light, danced over the small rock, screaming. But there are many such stories, and I did not give the warnings of the old-timers at the Isle de Seine a second thought. I signed up, boarded a ship, and within a month I was installed at the light. Picture a gray, tapering cylinder, welded to solid black rock by iron rods and concrete, rising up from the small island, twenty-odd miles from land. It lay in the midst of the sea, this island, a small, bare piece of stone, about a hundred and fifty feet long, perhaps forty wide, small, barely large enough for a man to walk about and stretch his legs at low tide. This is an advantage one doesn't find in all lights, however, for some of them rise, sheer from the waves, with no room for one to move save within the light itself. Still, on our island, one must be careful, for the rocks were treacherously smooth. One misstep, and down you would fall into the sea. Not that the risk of drowning was so great, but the waters around our island swarmed with huge sharks that kept eternal patrol around the base of the light. Still, it was a nice life there. We had enough provisions to last for months, in the event that the sea should become too rough for the supply ship to reach us on schedule. During the day, we would work about the light, cleaning rooms, polishing the metalwork, and the lens, and the reflector of the light itself, and at night we would sit on the gallery and watch our light. A 20,000 candle power lantern, 
swing its strong white bar of light over the sea from the top of its 120-foot tower. Some days the air would be very clear and we could see land, a thread-like line to the west. To the east, north, and south stretched the ocean. Landsmen, perhaps, would soon have tired of that kind of life, perched on a small island off the coast of South America for 18 weeks, until one's turn for shore leave came around. But we liked it there, my two fellow tenders and myself. So much so that for 22 months on end, with the exception of shore leaves, I was greatly satisfied with life on Three Skeleton Key. I had just returned from my leave at the end of June, that is to say, midwinter in that latitude, and had settled down to the routine with my two fellow keepers, a Breton by the name of Legau, and the head light keeper, Ichiba, a Basque of some dozen years or so older than either of us. Eight days went by as usual, and then on the ninth, after my return, Ichiba, who was on duty at the light, called Legau and me, sleeping in our rooms into the middle of the tower at two in the morning. We rose immediately and climbed the thirty or so steps that led to the gallery, and stood beside our chief. Now ships were a rare sight in our waters, for our light was a warning of treacherous reefs, barely hidden under the surface and running far out to sea. Consequently, we were always given a wide berth, especially by sailing vessels, which cannot maneuver as readily as steamers. No wonder that we were surprised at seeing this three-master heading dead on toward us in the gloom of early morning. I had immediately recognized her lines, but she stood out plainly, even at a distance of a mile, when our light shone on her. She was a beautiful ship of some 4,000 tons, a fast sailor that had carried cargoes to every part of the world, plowing the seas unceasingly. By her line, she was identified as a Dutch-built, which was understandable, as Perembo and Dutch Guiana were very close to Cayenne. Watching her sail dead for us, a white wave boiling at her bows, Legal cried out, What's wrong with her crew? Are they all drunk? Insane? Can't they see us? Echua nodded soberly, looked at us sharply as he remarked, See us? No doubt if there is a crew aboard. What do you mean, chief? Legal started. He turned to the Basque. Are you saying that she's the Flying Dutchman? His sudden fright had been so evident that the older man had laughed. No, old man, that's not what I meant. If I say there's no one aboard, I mean she's derelict. Then we understood her queer behavior. Achua was right. For some reason, believing she was doomed, her crew had abandoned her. Then she had righted herself and sailed on, wandering with the wind. The three of us grew tense as the ship seemed about to crash on one of our numerous reefs. But she suddenly lurched with some change of the wind. The yard swung up around, and the derelict came clumsily about and sailed dead away from us. In the light of our lantern, she seemed sound, so strong, that Achua exclaimed impatiently, Why the devil was she abandoned? Nothing smashed, no sign of fire. She doesn't sail as if she was taking on water. Legau waved at the departing ship. Bon voyage! He smiled at Achua and went on. She's leaving us, chief! Now we'll never know what- No, she's not. 
cried the Basque. Look, she's turning. As if obeying his words, the derelict three masters stopped, came about, and headed for us once more. And for the next four hours, the vessel played around us, zigging and zagging, coming about, stopping, and then suddenly lurching forward. No doubt some freak current and wind, of which our island was the center, kept her near us. Then, suddenly, the tropic dawn broke. The sun rose, and it was day, and the ship was plainly visible as she sailed past us. Our light extinguished. We returned to the galley with our glasses to inspect her. The three of us focused our glasses on the poop and saw, standing out sharply, black letters on the white background of a life ring. The stenciled name, Cornelius DeWitt, Rotterdam. We had read her lines correctly. She was Dutch. Just then the wind rose and the Cornelius DeWitt changed course, leaned to port, and headed straight for us once more. But this time she was so close that we knew she could not turn in time. Thunder! cried Legau, his Breton soul aching to see such a fine ship doomed to smash upon a reef. She's going to pile up! She's gone! I shook my head. Yes, and ashamed to see that beautiful ship wreck herself, and we're helpless. There was nothing we could do but watch. A ship sailing with all sail spread, creaming the sea at her forefoot as she runs before the wind. It's one of the most beautiful sights in the world. But this time, I could feel the tears stinging my eyes as I saw this ship, this fine ship, headed for her doom. All this time, our glasses were riveted on her. When we suddenly cried out together, The Ross! Now we knew why this ship, in perfect condition, was sailing without her crew aboard. They had been driven out by the rats. Not those poor specimens of rats you see ashore, barely reaching the length of one foot, from their trembling nose to the tip of their skinny tails, wretched creatures that dodge and hide at the mere sound of a footfall. No, these were ship's rats. Huge, wise creatures, born on the sea, sailing over the world on ships, transferring to other, larger ships as they multiply. There is as much difference between the rats of the land and these maritime rats as between a fishing smack and an armored cruiser. The rats of the sea were fierce, bold animals, large and strong, intelligent, clannish and sea-wise, able to put the best of mariners to shame with their knowledge of the sea, their uncanny ability to foretell the weather, and they are brave, the rats, and vengeful. If you so much as harm one, his sharp cry will bring hordes of his fellows to swarm over you, tear you, and not cease until your flesh has been stripped from your bones. The ones on this ship, the rats of Holland, are the worst, superior to all other rats of the sea, as their brethren are to the land rats. There is a well-known tale about these animals. A Dutch captain, thinking to protect his cargo, brought aboard his ship, not cats, but two terriers, dogs trained in the hunting, fighting and killing of vicious rats. By the time the ship, sailing from Rotterdam, had passed the Ostend Light, the dogs were gone and never seen again. In 24 hours they had been overwhelmed, killed and eaten by the rats. At times, when cargo does not suffice, the rats attack the crew, either driving them from the ship or eating them alive. And studying the Cornelius DeWitt, 
I turned sick, for her small boats were all in place. She had not been abandoned. Over her bridge, on her deck, in the rigging, on every visible spot, the ship was a writhing mass, a starving army coming toward us on a vessel gone mad. Our island was a small spot in that immense stretch of sea. This ship could have grazed us, passed to port or starboard, with its ravening cargo. But no, she came for us at full speed, as if she were the leading regatta at a race, and impaled herself upon the sharp point of rock. There was a small shock as her bottom stoved in, then a horrible cracking as three masts went overboard at once, as if cut down with one blow of some gigantic sickle. A sighing groan came over the water and rushed into the ship. Then she split in two and sank like a stone. But the rats did not drown. Not these fellows. As much at home in the sea as any fish, they formed ranks in the water, heads lifted, tails stretched out, paws paddling. Half of them, those from the forepart of the ship, sprang along the masts and on to the rocks, an instant before she sank. Before we even had time to move, nothing remained of the three-master, save some pieces of wreckage floating in the surface, and an army of rats covering the rocks, left bare by the receding tide. Thousands of heads rose, felt the wind, and we were scented. Seen. To them, we were fresh meat. After possible weeks of starvation, there came a scream, composed of innumerable screams, sharper than the howl of a saw attacking a bar of iron. And in one motion, every rat leaped to attack the tower. We barely had time to leap back, close the door leading to the gallery, descend the stairs, and shut every window tightly. Luckily, the door at the base of the light which we never could have reached in time, was bronze, set in granite, and was already tightly closed. The horrible band, in no measurable time, had swarmed up and over the tower as if it had been a tree, piled on the embrasures of the windows, scraped the glass with thousands of claws, covered the lighthouse with a furry mantle, and reached the top of the tower, filling the gallery and piling atop the lantern. Their teeth grated as they pressed against the glass of the lantern room, where they could plainly see us, though they could not reach us. A few millimeters of glass, luckily very strong, separated our faces from their gleaming, beady eyes, their sharp claws and teeth. Their odor filled the tower, poisoned our lungs, and rasped our nostrils with a pestilential, nauseating smell. And there we were, sealed alive in our own light, prisoners of a horde of starving rats. That first night, the tension was so great that we could not sleep. Every moment we felt that some opening had been made, some window had given way, and that our horrible besiegers were pouring in through the breach, the rising tide chasing those rats which had stayed on the bare rocks increased the numbers clinging to the walls, piled on the balcony, so much so that clusters of rats clinging to one another hung from the lantern in the gallery. With the coming of darkness, we lit the light, and the turning beam completely maddened the beasts. As the light turned, it successively blinded thousands of rats crowded against the glass. 
while the dark side of the lantern room gleamed with thousands of points of light, burning like the eyes of jungle beasts in the night, while we could hear the enraged scraping of claws against stone and glass, while the chorus of cries was so loud that we had to shout to hear one another. From time to time, some of the rats fought among themselves, and a cluster would detach itself, falling into the sea like a ripe fruit from a tree. Then we would see the phosphorescent shrieks as triangular fins slashed the water. Sharks, permanent guardians of our rock, feasting on our jailers. The next day we were calmer, and we amused ourselves by teasing the rats, placing our faces against the glass which separated us. They could not fathom the invisible barrier which separated us from them, and we laughed as we watched them leaping against the heavy glass. But the day after that, we realized how serious our position was. The air was foul. Even the heavy smell of the oil within our stronghold could not dominate the fetid odor of the beasts that massed around us. There was no way of admitting fresh air without also admitting the rats. The morning of the fourth day, at early dawn, I saw the wooden framework of my window eaten away from the outside, sagging inward. I called my comrades, and the three of us fastened a sheet of tin in the opening, sealing it tightly. When we had completed the task, Achua turned to us and said dully, Well, the supply boat came thirteen days ago, and she won't be back for twenty-nine. He pointed at the white metal plate sealing the opening through the granite. If that gives way, he shrugged. They can change the name of this place to Six Skeleton Key. The next six days and seven nights, our only distraction was watching the rats, whose holds were insecure, fall a hundred and twenty feet to the maws of the sharks. But they were so many that we could not see any diminution of their numbers. Thinking to calm ourselves and pass the time, we attempted to count them, but we soon gave up. They moved incessantly, never still. Then we tried identifying them, naming them. One of them, larger than the others, who seemed to lead them in their rushes against the glass separating us, we named Nero, and there were several others whom we had learned to distinguish through various peculiarities. But the thought of our bones joining those of the convicts was always in the back of our mind, and the gloom of our prison fed these thoughts, for the interior light was almost completely dark, as we had to seal off every window, in the same fashion as mine. And the only space that still admitted daylight was the glassed-in lantern room at the very top of the tower. Then Legal became morose, and had nightmares in which he would see three dancing skeletons around him, gleaming coldly, seeking to grasp him. His maniacal, raving descriptions were so vivid that Ichiba and I began to see them also. It was a living nightmare. The raging cries of the rats as they swarmed over the light, mad with hunger, the sickening, strangling odor of their bodies. True, there was a way of signaling from the lighthouses, but to reach the mast on which to hang the signal, we would have to go out to the gallery where the rats were. There was only one thing left to do. After debating all of the ninth day, we decided not to light the lantern that night. This was the greatest breach of our service never committed as long as the tenders of the light are alive, for the light is something sacred, warning ships of the danger in the night. Either the light gleams a quarter hour after the sun goes down, 
or no one is left alive to light it. Well, that night, the three-skeleton key light was dark, and all the men were alive. At the risk of causing ships to crash on our reefs, we left it unlit, for we were worn out and going mad. At two in the morning, while Ichua was dozing in his room, the sheet of metal sealing his window gave way. The chief had just enough time to leap to his feet and cry for help as the rats came swarming in over him. But Lagao and I, who had been watching from the lantern room, got to him immediately, and the three of us battled off the horde of maddened rats, which flowed through the gaping window. They bit, we struck them down with our knives, and retreated. We locked the door of the room on them, but before we had time to bind our wounds, the door was eaten through and gave way, and we retreated up the stairs, fighting off the rats that leaped on us from the knee-deep swarm. I do not remember, to this day, how we managed to escape. All I can remember is wading through them, up the stairs, striking them off as they swarmed over us. Then we found ourselves, bleeding from innumerable bites, our clothes shredded, sprawled across the trap door in the floor of the lantern room, without food or drink. Luckily, the trap door was metal, set into a granite with iron bolts. The rats occupied the entire light beneath us, and on the floor of our retreat lay some twenty of their fellows who had gotten in with us before the trapdoor closed, whom we had killed with our knives. Below us in the tower, we could hear the screams of the rats as they devoured everything edible that they found. Those on the outside squealed in reply and writhed in a horrible curtain as they stared at us through the glass of the lantern room. Ichua sat up, stared silently at his blood trickling from the wounds on his limbs and body, running in thin streams to the floor around him. Lagao, who was in as bad of a state, and so was I for that matter, stared at the chief, stared at the chief and me vacantly, started as his gaze swung around to the multitudes of rats against the glass. Then, suddenly, he began laughing horribly. <laughs> Three skeletons! <laughs> Three skeletons are now six skeletons. Six skeletons! He threw his head back and howled. His eyes glazed, a trickle of saliva running from the corners of his mouth, thinning the blood flowing over his chest. I shouted at him to shut up, but he did not hear me, so I did the only thing I could do to quiet him. I swung the back of my hand across his face. The howling stopped suddenly. His eyes swung around the room, and he bowed his head and began weeping softly, like a child. Our darkened light had been noticed from the mainland. As dawn was breaking, the patrol was there, to investigate the failure of our light. Looking through my binoculars, I could see the horrified expression on the faces of the officers and crew, when, the daylight strengthening, they saw the light completely covered by the seething mass of rats. They thought, as I found out afterwards, that we had been eaten alive. But the rats had also seen the ship, or had scented the crew. As the ship drew nearer, a solid phalanx left the light, plunged into the water, and swimming out, attempted to board her. They would have succeeded, as the ship was hove to. But the engineer connected his steam hose onto the deck, and scalded the head of the attacking column, which slowed them up long enough for the ship to get underway and leave the rats behind. Then the sharks took part, belly up. 
mouths gaping. They arrived in swarms and scooped up the rats, sweeping through them like a sickle through wheat. That was one day that the sharks really served a useful purpose. The remaining rats turned tail, swam to the shore, and emerged dripping. As they neared the light, their comrades greeted them with shrill cries, with what sounded like a derisive note predominating. They answered angrily and mingled with their fellows. From several tussles that broke out, it seemed that they resented being ridiculed for their failure to capture the ship. But this did nothing to get us out of our jail. The ship could not approach, but steamed around the light at a safe distance, and the tower must have seemed fantastic, some weird, many-mouthed beast hurling defiance at them. Finally, seeing the rats running in and out of the tower through the windows and doors, those on the ship decided that we had perished and were about to leave when Ichua, regaining his senses, thought of using the light as a signal. He lit it and, using a plank, placed and withdrawn before the beam to form the dots and dashes, quickly sent our story to those on the vessel. The reply came back quickly. They understood our position, how we could not get rid of the rats. Legal's mind going fast. Etua and myself covered with bites, cornered in the lantern room, without food or water. They had a signalman send us their reply. His arms swinging like those of a windmill, he quickly spelled out, Don't give up. Hang on a little longer. We will get you out of this. Then she turned, steamed at top speed for the coast, leaving us little reassured. She was back at noon, accompanied by the supply ship, two small coast guard boats, and the fireboat, a small squadron. At 12.30, the battle was on. After a short reconnaissance, the fireboat picked her way slowly through the reefs until she was close to us, then turned her powerful jet of water on the rats. The heavy stream tore the rats from their places and hurled them screaming into the water, where the sharks gulped them down. But for every ten that were dislodged, seven swam ashore, and the stream could do nothing to the rats within the tower. Furthermore, some of them, instead of returning to the rocks, boarded the fireboat, and the men were forced to battle them hand to hand. They were true rats of Holland, fearing no man, fighting for the right to live. Nightfall came, and it was as if nothing had been done. The rats were still in possession. One of the patrol boats stayed by the island. The rest of the flotilla departed for the coast. We had to spend another night in our prison. Legao was sitting on the floor, babbling about skeletons. As I turned to Achua, he fell unconscious from his wounds. I was in no better shape, and I could feel my blood flaming with fever. Somehow the night dragged by, and by the next afternoon I saw the tug, accompanied by the fireboat, come from the mainland with a huge barge in tow. Through my glasses I saw the barge was filled with meat. Risking the treacherous reefs, the tug dragged the barge as close to the island as possible. To the last rat, our besiegers deserted the rock, swam out and boarded the barge, reeking with the scent of freshly cut meat. The tug dragged the barge about a mile from shore, where the fireboat drenched the barge with gasoline. A well-placed incendiary shell from the patrol boat bombarded them with shrapnel from a safe distance, and the sharks finished off the survivors. A whaleboat from the patrol boat took us off the island 
and left three men to replace us. By nightfall, we were all in the hospital at Cayenne. What became of my friends? Well, Legault's mind had cracked, and he was raving, mad. They sent him back to France and locked him up in an asylum, the poor devil. Achua died within a week. A rat's bite is dangerous in that hot, humid climate, and the infection set in rapidly. As for me, when they fumigated the light and repaired the damage done by the rats, I resumed my service there. Why not? No reason why such an incident should keep me from finishing out my service there, is there? Besides, I told you I liked the place, to be truthful. I've never had a post so pleasant as that one. And when my time came to leave it forever, I tell you that I almost wept as Three Skeleton Key disappeared below the horizon.